Uh, fear is a motivator for good and for evil. Fear is a, an emotional problem that we often have. And I went back and started this in Genesis and want to continue there today with Genesis 26 uh, and see how some of the patriarchs dealt with various kinds of fear. Uh, it is instructive for us. <clears throat> and I want to begin in chapter 26 of Genesis. We talked some about Abram and Abraham last week. But here, dire conditions were coming. Chapter 26, there was a famine in the land. Famine means very little food. A time of great distress. Perhaps a time of starvation. We know that it worsened. And during the days of Jacob, they had to send to Egypt for food because they ran out. No food to eat. And that was starting here in the days of Isaac. Verse 12, or 2, excuse me. And the Eternal appeared to him, to Isaac, and said, Go not down into Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you of. Now here is a problem that is coming up. God had promised to Abraham, the father of Isaac, that he would give Isaac and his seed the land that they dwelt on, and that would be to their seed forevermore. And God comes back at a time of trouble to encourage Isaac to do what God wanted done. Now, it may have appeared to Isaac that there was a better solution. In fact, he may have been contemplating going down into Egypt because he knew that there would be food there. But God intervened and says, I don't like your plan, Isaac. I have a different plan for you. Now, we may go through life and we see our lives and what might happen and where our lives might be headed. We see trouble on the horizon uh, many, many people in our nation now are beginning to truly see problems on the horizon. I've talked to quite a few people here and there over the last two or three weeks that I've run into in traveling and this and that, and a lot of them see a problem. I talked to some people from Holland just the other night uh, for quite a while, and they see problems both in Europe and here. <clears throat> so we realize we are headed into troublesome times. Now, across the land and around the world, the people whom God has called out in this end-time age are looking at the situation, and they have varying ideas on how they might deal with it, how they might cope, what they must do, where they must go. Some have gone to foreign lands. Some have gone to Israel and the Middle East. Others have moved out into the country. Various people are doing various things. <clears throat> Would it be wise to consult God? What if what He thinks you should do is different than what you think you should do? Can you trust Him? Can you believe that He knows what He's talking about? Will you do what He says, or will you say, well, I have a different plan? So he said to him, Don't go into Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you of. 
sojourn in this land, and I will be with you. Now, do we begin to see here in this ancient history some of the same language that God uses in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, which were written in Zechariah, Haggai, which were written many, many centuries later, to an end-time church. And God said, I have certain things based on the trouble that is coming that I would have you do. I have a land I want you to go into. I have instruction for you. Now, most people in the church today probably have not even read those instructions, and if they have, they have not understood to whom it was speaking, or that it had anything to do with them. That's sad that we have this book, which has so much information and has so many scriptures dealing with the time that we are now in and entering into as well, so much, and yet they don't grasp that it could be for them. Isaac did grasp that, because God appeared to him. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you of. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and will bless you. For unto you, and to your seed, I will give all these countries, and I will perform the oath which I swore unto Abraham your father. Now, are we Isaac's seed? Is a question to ask here. Because he said, all these lands that you see here, I am going to give to you and your seed according to the oath I swore to Abraham. He told Abraham, all the land you see here, I'm going to give you and Isaac and your seed forever. Reiterated the promise here to Isaac. And he gave the same promise to Jacob later on when he became Israel. Now, Can we trust God? We have been told that we should turn our hearts to the fathers here at the end time. Our fathers were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And of course, our Father in heaven above all, but physically speaking, and as the heritage of Israelites. We have a quandary here at the end time, or perplexity. What do we do in the face of all the trouble that is coming? Can we truly trust God? Now, a lot of people will not, is the reason I keep bringing this up. A lot of people will not be willing to trust God. They will seek out and find their own solution, if indeed it is one. Now, Stephen Collins wrote a book, used the word SC all the way through, showing where the Anglo-Saxons went, the sons of Isaac, and I think pretty substantially proved. We already knew it through the U.S. and B.C. and prophecy and so on, but he added some detail, showing where Israel is today. 
Do you believe God? Do you trust His Word? Do you believe that what He told Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all those centuries ago, God could back up and make come to pass? Now, this is critical for you and me. Because if you can't trust Him to have kept the promise to our fathers, then how could you expect any end-time prophecies that He makes to us to also come true? I think it is a critical issue for us to understand who we are and where we are today. If God made those promises to these men, and we are their seed, then we have to be living in the land that they trod, the land that was north, south, east, and west of them at that time, he said he would give to their seed. So you have to look at where Israel is today. And I think we have defined that basically as northwestern Europe and the British Isles. Some people of Israel have gone to South Africa, Australia, New Zealand. I think it is pretty clear where Israel is today. The United States and Canada are some of them. Now, if God is true and not a liar, then somewhere where the majority of Israel is today is the land that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were promised and their seed forever. Where would that be? Where do you Anglo-Saxons live? Now, if you go to Genesis 49, you can read down through all of these. I'm not going to read them all. We've been there recently. He opens this chapter by saying, Jacob called all his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. This is a prophecy to these sons about where they would be, what their status would be, their level of blessing or whatever, in the last days. I submit to you, these are the last days. So this prophecy is about right now. Now whom, or who here, does he give the greatest blessings to? You can go through them and you won't see much until you get down to verse 22 about Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well whose branches run over the wall. Now that is symbolic of great prosperity and great production. We know Joseph split into two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. So it includes the both here, although... Other places show, back in chapter 48, in fact, that Ephraim would receive the greater blessings than Manasseh. So when you're reading this, look upon Ephraim as being the one who receives the greater blessings of what he says to Joseph here, okay? 
So a very fruitful land, I ask you if Palestine in the Middle East today is a truly fruitful land that you can say the boughs are running over the wall. I've traveled that country from north to south, east to west, and most of what's in between. And most of it is most desolate. Most of it is desert. It does not remind me of a fruitful field whatsoever, except right along the Jordan and a few places where they are able to irrigate. But it is truly a desert land and not fruitful. <clears throat> is that where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob walked? The archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him. We've had world wars. We've been hated. We're hated now more than we've ever been hated. But his bow abode in strength. So he says that in the end time, Joseph will have a strong military. And that no matter who shoots at him, they will prevail. Where is that true of today? Who has the strongest military on earth? Who shoots their arrows at us to no avail? The arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. So God says he would make Joseph, particularly Ephraim, very strong militarily in the end, and their enemies could not prevail. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. I would be speaking of Christ. Where has Christ done his work today in the end time? Then primarily in this country vast majority of it, 90% of it, more or less, has been done in this country. This is where Christ has been dealing. Even by the God of your Father who shall help you, and by the Almighty who shall bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of rain and weather, have we had those over the history of this country? Have they had that in the Middle East? Blessings of the deep that lies under. We've had blessings of the ocean. Wonderful fisheries. And even great oil production, if you want to go really deep, and under the land and under the sea for that matter. Because of politics, we may not be drilling and, and uh, harvesting all that oil, but it's there. Blessings of the breasts and of the womb of all the countries of Israel today. Where has the population grown the greatest? We're ten times the size of Canada population-wise, many times the size of the British Isles. Of what country in the end time is God speaking here? you got a better answer, let me know. We have been very productive that way. We haven't kept up with the Gentiles on the breeding program, but we're certainly ahead of the rest of the Israelites. The blessings of your father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors unto the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. That's a pretty strong statement there. 
Which countries of Israel today would you say fit that? The blessings of your father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors under the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. We have been blessed in this country far above any of the other countries of Israel. Try South Africa, New Zealand, or Australia and the production there. Go to Northwest Europe and see if any one of those tribes of Israel has come anywhere close to the military might, the blessings of the womb, the power, the productivity of this country. And on the crown of the head of him that it was separate from his brethren. So God pronounced verses and verses of incredible blessings upon Joseph in the end time that would be above those of his brothers around him. Does any of those areas that we recognize as being Israelite today even come close to this land? No. You couldn't name one that was 10% of it, even. Where has God's blessing come? And where has Christ done His work? I think that's one of the big keys right there. For thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Most of the work was done in this country, and second to that, Great Britain. Beyond that, it drops off very sharply. Now, if you have trouble grasping this concept, Perhaps you have trouble grasping that God could make prophecies thousands of years ago that have come to pass, and you have to look around. You see, this, this chapter requires a certain amount of thought, brethren. You have to analyze it, which is what we've been doing here. You have to look at it and see, what does it really say, and where does that fit? Does it even begin to fit the Middle East? No. I have to conclude from this and many other places that right now I am standing on the land of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph in the United States. This is the land God promised because that's where we are. If we were anywhere else, that would be it. If this prophecy in Genesis 49 is to come to pass, and what we just read in chapter 26 of what he promised to Isaac, we've got to find Isaac and Isaac's sons, then we know, without a doubt, we have found the land of promise. It's that simple. If I'm an Israelite, I had better be in the land, or especially of Joseph or Jacob, or of Joseph through Ephraim or Manasseh. I'll get it right. Then I'd better be where those blessings are. And we read not long ago all the blessings he said would come through Ephraim, the firstborn. He's raised Ephraim to the firstborn. The firstborn got what? Double blessings. What land of all the Israelite lands that we know today has double blessings? 
Now we're in the process of having them taken away, but even yet, none of them come even close. Now why do I spend a little time on this? We've gone over some of these things before. Because I want us to truly begin to trust God with all our hearts. That what He says, He will perform. How many men could write something and thousands of years later it come to pass just as they said? No one. But God can So when he makes promises to you and me here in the end, will they come to pass? Now, if God be truthful and not a liar, the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are in the original promised land today. That's what the Scripture says. Now all we have to do is identify who those people are, and we know where the land of promise was. It's really quite simple. But getting us to believe that. You see, if you don't believe that, then you don't trust God to have fulfilled His promises. If He promised it and He did it, then I have to look around and say, where is it? And wherever I find it has to be what he was talking about here, right? Can anybody punch a hole in that? No. Does it change some of our preconceived ideas? Does it endanger some of the things that this world tells us? Yes, it does. But what has God done? The biggest problem that has ever faced mankind since Adam and Eve were created is to trust God and believe God. That's been our biggest hang-up as human beings. But He is God, and that He will fulfill His promises. People just don't believe that. Most people have never believed that. And the few that do are pretty tentative about it. It's hard to find people who will say, this is the Word of God, I'm going to believe everything it says. And therefore, wherever I find Isaac today, Jacob and Joseph, that has to be the fulfillment of this because God's not a liar. I'm asking you to believe the promises God made us in the prophecies and to live by them because you trust God and you believe that if you do what He says, He will protect you through all that is about to come. It was in this context of a grave famine that was about to come upon the land that God reiterated His promise to Isaac that he had given to Abraham and said, this will be. Now, what did Isaac, our father, do? Did he go down into Egypt and say, I don't know, Lord, there ain't no food here. 
I think I better go down to Egypt. Talk to you later. Nuh-uh. I will make your seed to multiply as the stars of heaven will give to you your seed all these countries. And in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. There's another good prophecy right there. Which country has all the earth been blessed in? Thailand? Ethiopia? Russia? Germany? China? No, we're the market of the earth. We're the ones that consume all their goods and make them rich. We're the ones who have given foreign aid hand over fist by the hundreds of billions of dollars over the last 60, 70, 80 years. So which seed where have the nations of the earth been blessed in? In us. He says, I'll give you this country. Have the nations of the earth been blessed from the Middle East, to make this really pointed, from Palestine? No. Not at all. Is that the promised land? Is that where all these blessings and all these promises are emanating from today? No. It's a little desert land that has to have continual and annual infusions of money from the United States to even survive. And protection from us to survive from her enemies. And on and on it goes. She is not blessing us and protecting us. She is not blessing or protecting anybody. And in fact, all she wants to do is destroy everybody around her. And those aren't even the seed of Abraham, most of them who are there. They're Nazi, Edomites. They're not even Jews, most of them. Is that the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? No, it's the seed of Esau. We need to get this. <coughs> we need to get it because it has a great deal to do with our level of trust in God. That these promises He made about the end time, we can read and know that they've been fulfilled. Now, what should that do? That should give us trust <coughs> that the one that <coughs> made these promises all those years ago can, will, and does fulfill what He says. And that's critical to you and me in terms of our lives, our daily lives, in what we do and do not do, in how we interact with the world around us, or draw from it for the most part. It has a great deal to do with our everyday life, and whether we really trust God or not. And getting people to trust their health and wealth their security, their peace, their lives into God's hands is a very, very difficult chore. And Isaac's seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That is going to only be talking about Israel. 
Because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. The blessings we have in this land did not come because of our great righteousness. They, became, they came to us because of Abraham's obedience, and God fulfilled that. Isaac, though, still had his problems. Right after this, he had a run-in a little bit with Abimelech. He told, like his father had, that Sarah, I mean, uh, not Sarah, but Rebecca was his sister, not his wife. And then after a period of time, they'd been there in the land that God told him to go. Abimelech saw him fooling around with Rebecca and said, Wait a minute, they're not treating her like a sister. So, what drove him to lie about Rebekah's status? Fear. He was afraid of Abimelech and what Abimelech might do to him. There are lessons good and bad from our forefathers. Now, the bigger situation, the famine in the land, starving to death, and you go where I tell you to go, was a bigger leap of faith, and Isaac had to swallow his fear in that case and trust God, and did so. And yet on a smaller item here that, re- that had somewhat less fear involved of his family and so on, he lied to protect himself. So when we look to our fathers, in some cases we see a wonderful example, and in some cases we see mistakes that were made. Now, do we look down upon them because they weren't rocks of faith at all times? No, to me, I find it very encouraging that someone like Isaac, who will be in the kingdom of God, and who was in the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right on down to Christ himself, had his own fears, his inadequacies, his things that he had to deal with that were not always easy. Why does that give me encouragement? Because I'm the same way. And I realize that if Isaac, too, had his problems, instead of being rock solid, remember where his greatest fear was? I think we talked about it a bit last week. When his father says, go up and then put him on that altar and stacked brush on him to make a fire and pulled out his knife to slice his throat, I'm sure his heart was in his throat and great fear came over him. A young man in health, looking forward to a life and a wife and children, living in the land, and your own father is about to kill you. What a fear to overcome and to trust. His own trust as a younger man in God and in his father had to have been very strong. So there are things there that we can look upon as examples to follow, and yet we can see a weakness in the man and say, huh, You know, at least there's hope for me because I'm not always the rock that Isaac was when he was about to get his throat cut. 
Not the rock that he was when his family might have been starving to death and God said, don't go down there where you know there's food, but go to this different country. So generally, he was strong and obeyed God, and yet he had his weaknesses, just like we do. And we can say, well, God dealt with him, God forgave him, God helped him, and therefore God will forgive me and help me. So there's encouragement both in strength and in weakness in our fathers. Let's go on to chapter 28. Here we pick up some of the things about Joseph. I'm just sort of going down the line here with Abraham, Isaac, oh, I mean Jacob is, is where we come next, uh, chapter 28. Because Jacob is the one who came to be Israel. He had serious problems with his brother. Uh, let's see, I want to pick this up. Oh, about verse 9. Esau went, uh, Then went Esau to Ishmael and took wives and so on. And Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran, verse 10. He had a certain place there and he lay down to go to sleep. <coughs> verse 12, he dreamed a dream and behold, a ladder set on the earth. The top reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. This must have been quite a dream. And the Eternal stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Notice this is passed down generation to generation among these faithful men. God always reminds them where they came from. That is important for us to realize where we came from. That we go all the way back there. And that we came down through that lineage, through David, to Christ Himself. Now, that's speaking of physical blood. God chose to open it up to others and grafted them in so they're as much Israelite as any blood Israelite. Uh, And even the Gentiles, in that sense, have exactly the same lineage we do because they are no longer Gentiles once they are in the church of God. They are Israelites, totally and completely. Anyway, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac, and now you're Jacob. The land whereon you lie, to you will I give it, and to your seed. He keeps reiterating this down through the ages. Your seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. And in you and in your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So where he was laying that night is the same land that Abraham and Isaac walked, and he put his pillow on it. So wherever he was, north, south, east, and west of there is where the end-time people of Israel would be. I am with you, and will keep you in all places where you go, and will bring you again into this land. They would leave that land for a time, and then they would be brought back. For I will not leave you until I have done that which I have spoken to you of. And he woke up, and knew this must have been God, and this place must have been the gate to heaven, the house of God. I think that the place he was laying was very, very near 
to where the temple of God was built originally before it was destroyed, the original temple. It probably wasn't very far from here. Now, Jacob had his fears. He had his concerns. Let's see it. Verse 18, Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it and called the name of that place Bethel, or the house of God. But the name of that city was called Luz at the first. And Jacob vowed a vow, saying, If God will be with me, he had some concerns. He saw that dream. He saw the promise of God given in that dream. And then he woke up and thought about it and said, well, indeed, if God will do what that dream said. You know, if you had that kind of a powerful dream, you'd wake up thinking about it. You'd ponder the meaning. You'd wonder if it really had anything to do with you. We probably all have had dreams and we wondered, is there any significance in that? Does that have anything to do with my life? Did that come from God? Or was that just another one of my silly dreams? But when there's one this powerful, it gets you thinking. It makes you wonder, really, if God was involved. So he thought it over, and it must have been very powerful because it caused him to vow a vow before God. A vow is a very serious thing to take. We vowed to trust God at the time of baptism. That we would put our hands entirely, our lives entirely in His hands. For better or for worse, we became slaves of Christ. We agreed to bring every thought into the subjection of Christ. And that everything we do would have to do with His way of life. It's a pretty powerful vow to make. So when it says here that Jacob vowed a vow, this was a very serious moment in his life. It wasn't just a flip and say, well, I think I'll do this. No, this was a vow. If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat, and raiment to put on, so that I come again to my Father's house in peace. Then shall the Lord be my God. In other words, he was holding God to the promises that God made him in that dream. That the land he was lying on would be his, and that God would take care of him in it. So he said, if that dream be true, and that dream came from God, which I think it did, then I'm going to vow a vow before God that He will be my God and I will serve Him forevermore. And to emphasize that vow, this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. Now, do you think that God could possibly have led Jacob to the place where God's house would ultimately be built? And that He would give him that dream on that place? 
and that he would call it Bethel, the house of God? That only makes sense to me. But wherever he was, wherever his children are today, is the land he was lying on that night, if you believe God. This will be God's house, and of all that you shall give me, I will surely give the tenth, the tithe to you. So, he understood that Abraham had given the tenth and the tithe to God, and he understood that that was a significant event that proved his allegiance to God. It was not an empty vow based on nothing. Vowing that vow and making the promise he did would cost him a tenth of every bit of the increase that he would ever have throughout the rest of his life. So this vow was not just so many words, it had teeth. It had commitment in it. You know, it's easy to promise something. It's easy to say, I'll do that. But what are you willing to commit? We have this problem today in our land with men and women who have trouble committing. That's something that is talked about a great deal on talk shows and in the print, here and there and everywhere. Hard to make a commitment. And something that a possible marriage partner could believe in that you intend to do. We don't want to make those commitments. Well, I don't think Jacob was like that. When Jacob was ready to commit himself to do something before God, he made a vow, he made a promise, and then he backed it up with something that he said, I will do. Now, this is the kind of example that God tells us to look to here at the end time. And this is the very man who in Genesis 29, or 49 told his sons, here are the things that will happen to you in the last days. So we only have to look for those people in the last days and read what he said about each one and then begin identifying who those are. And it becomes very obvious that Joseph is in the United States, and Great Britain. becomes so very obvious. Was Jacob's trust in God well-founded? I believe it was. Because I see Genesis 49 fulfilled in us today. and in other countries in northwestern Europe and around the world where Israel is. That's pretty solid, isn't it? That God would make a promise all those thousands of years ago, and we can look around today and say, boy, that happened. Why is it then that we get afraid about our health, or we get afraid about our wealth, or we get afraid about our children? We get afraid about so many things, and then we have trouble believing God. Now, I'll give you people sitting here some credit. 
You read some scriptures about this end time. That there's famine and pestilence and disease and various things coming up in this world. And you might have looked around had you read those scriptures and says, Boy, I'd like to go where I can grow a garden real good. I'd like to go where there aren't too many people around, but where conditions are really good and I can survive. And God would have said, no, don't go there. I want you to go out in the desert where it's hard to raise a garden. I want you to go out where you have to buy hay for a cow. You can't raise it. I want you to go out where it's hot and you need air conditioning to think you're even going to survive. I'm going to put you in a really bad place. Oh, okay, God. That sounds good. No. It didn't sound too good to you people, did it? Based on where you were? This is probably a worse place than any of you were. Let me look around. Well, no, I won't even say that. This is probably worse than where we were. So it's not something we would have naturally gravitated to. But we saw in the Scriptures that God said, if you'll go to a place like that, when the time comes, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you everything you need to survive the end time. I'll give you protection and all that is required for you to live in peace in a time of great trouble. And this doesn't just look like that. So it required a certain amount of faith for you to give up land, home, family, houses, and all those things to come to an apparently God-forsaken place like this. But then we found there was water under the ground. And there's not much of the area around here. And we found that there are some very significant Areas here that I believe will be very important. So God led us out into the desert. Should that surprise us? When He led Israel out of Egypt, where did He take them? Out into the desert. That's the way He works. He says, I will bless you if you will serve Me. And then he immediately, when we agree to that, takes us somewhere worse than we've ever been. Isn't that odd and strange? No, not when you understand history. Not when you understand that God tries and tests people. And he wants to find out if they will trust him and believe him. And do what he says, no matter what the conditions are. So He puts you in a position where fear could easily take over, where trust would wane very quickly. Like, well, we crossed the Red Sea. That was wonderful. Where's some water? Don't see any water. You brought us out here to die. First reaction. <laughs> now, have any of you wrestled since we've been here? With why are we out here in this desert? I bet you have. 
and look around and see a few smiles. So I'm afraid to because that would tip off what you'd been thinking. No. No, we believed it and we came. But it doesn't mean that we didn't wrestle sometimes with our attitudes and our minds and wonder why in the world. But we could go back. And you know, that's what I do. Anytime I begin to think, man, alive, how could this be? All I have to do is go back and start reading Isaiah, Haggai, Zechariah, Jeremiah, some of those scriptures, and the story is there. It is there. It cannot be denied any more than these clear back in Genesis can be denied. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If He could just convince each and every generation that comes along that God makes promises and God will keep them, if we will just do what He says, if we'll just believe Him and do what He says, all these blessings will come. But we get timid and fearful and think, oh, I don't know. Boy, it seems like this would be a better way to go. It seems, you know, human reasoning starts coming in. And then we have trouble obeying God. And then we receive curses. We were given this land because of the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because of Abraham's obedience, which we just read. And had we come into this land of promise and obeyed God, we would not now be facing genetically modified crops, droughts, diseases of Egypt, and all the horrible things that Deuteronomy and Leviticus talk about in the blessings and cursings chapter. But we chose not to obey God, and now we are facing the cursings. Now, God did His part. In the latter days, He brought us to a beautiful land. He brought us back again, as He told Jacob. And He put us in the land that He had moved us out of by ship, as He said He would do in Deuteronomy. And let us have it again here in the latter days. And the nations of Israel, and particularly this nation, have been a blessing to the whole world. But we didn't believe God. We thought we had a better way. And we departed from God. And now we are about to go into slavery. And our government is quickly betraying us to the new world order. If the previous administration took baby steps, this one today is taking giant steps toward communism and outright fascism. And we are going into captivity soon because we didn't believe God. We didn't live by these promises we went our own way. Now that's talking about our whole population. Now is there anything to learn from what you see happening in this country today? If there's anything 
we should get out of it. It is that there is a God in heaven and that all those things He promised in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy about the latter days have come to pass. The blessings did come because of the obedience of Abraham. We have enjoyed those blessings. But we turned even as Israel turned from God after His deliverance. He installed us in this beautiful land in the last days, brought us back just like He said He would, and gave it to us. And we didn't appreciate it. And we have departed from Him. And the cursings are coming. Now, can the church of God, even in the throes of this, come to believe and trust God that not only do these promises come upon us as a people, a physical people, but God says, if you will turn to me with your whole heart, even in the end time, my people, the church today, is the Israel God is interested in. It is the only hope of obedience to God on the face of this earth. Physical Israel has utterly rejected their God and abort their babies, and now they're going to have a health care plan that will kill the elderly and everything else you can name. We have turned our backs utterly to God as a nation. And God is bringing us down. So He has put His hope, He has put His trust in a people that He would call out in the end, that He would call spiritual Israel. The only hope of obedience on the earth, brethren, is you and me. And those like us around the world. That were called basically under the umbrella of Herbert W. Armstrong. A few called in the 11th hour, maybe, since, but not many. This is where God chose to hang his hat with you and me and others like us. We're the hope of the world in that sense. Now I know God the Father and Christ are the hope of the world, but we are to be allied with them. And he said, if it were not for the elect's sake, for those few who would obey, there would no flesh be saved alive. So that makes us part of the hope of the world, doesn't it? All the people living on this earth, and whether they physically survive these end-time prophecies, has a great deal to do with whether there is a people at the end time who will serve God with their whole hearts. For the elect's sake, it will be cut short and some flesh will be saved alive. Now, if there are any elect on this earth, those called to the truth through Herbert Armstrong, essentially or where that hope lies. Now that's a heavy responsibility. 
That's a heavy thing to take on our backs. But when we vow to vow before God and went under that water, we promised God that we would serve Him for the rest of the days of our lives. We promised that no matter how bad it got, no matter what happened, whatever trials, troubles, tribulations might come upon us, that we would remain faithful, that we would serve Him with all our hearts, minds, bodies, and souls. That we would not let fear of man intervene, but that we would fear Him and trust Him to take care of us. And that we would be a light to the rest of the world. What a heavy responsibility. Now, we may not have understood that quite as fully the time we were baptized. But all it does is deepen in time as you come to a greater and deeper understanding of what God is doing and why He's doing it on this earth. So it should make our commitment even stronger. And when we see these things happening here at the end time that God again prophesied thousands of years ago would happen now. The things that he told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we have seen happen. Israel is in the promised land of God. And now we see the prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and the others coming to pass before our very eyes. Those also were written thousands of years ago. Can you trust that God, through these horrible, troublesome times, that are here and coming upon us with your life? Or will fear of man overcome that? Which will it be? He's promised us protection. He's promised us that we might be accounted worthy to be given special dispensation here. His wings covering us. And He gave us instructions as to what to do in order to achieve that. Is it worth it? Do we believe it? How much do we believe it? How much are we willing to entrust our lives to God? What do we leave outside that loop? What do we keep to ourselves and say, I think I can take care of this one, Lord. I'll trust you with this and this, but this one right here, I, I think I better kind of look after this. I know somebody better than you that can handle this. Who do you know in this world that can handle something better than God can? Well, you really can't argue with that, can you? The only argument we really have is the one that says, if you'll do what I say, I will bless you, I'll take care of you, I'll heal you, I'll strengthen you, I'll give you food, I'll give you work, I'll give you whatever you need to survive. He said, according to your faith, be it unto you. 
according to your trust in God, be it unto you. And we have trouble believing God. We wonder why we aren't healed more. Now I understand that He is waiting, and the Scriptures show that, for a time of general healing and spectacular and miraculous healing. But we should be able to trust God now to intervene for us. And I've seen some of you trust God, and I've seen God intervene for some of you. Right here over the last few years on this property right here, I've seen it happen. I've seen babies people thought might be dead revive suddenly. I've seen people who were in comas come right out of it. I've seen things happen. It's easy to forget those, maybe. We've had a few people die, even. But that happens. You know, we do get old. We do get diseased. Maybe God has a specific purpose in mind sometimes. The point is, do we trust God that He has our best interests in mind, that He will take care of us in whatever way is best for us? He will allow things to happen to us in terms of trials, tribulations, sicknesses, or whatever to teach us what we need to learn. With cases like Paul... He raised the dead. Kid fell out of the balcony, fell on the ground, dead. And God raised him up through Paul. But then Paul had a problem, apparently with his eyes and his looks and his speech. And God wouldn't heal him of it. Paul went to him, he only went to him once with Eutychus dead on the floor. Up he came. Went to him three times about his own problems. God said, no, Paul, no, Paul, no, Paul. You will suffer with that for the rest of your life for reasons of my own. Now, did Paul say, well, you promised healing, so I'm out of here. No. He understood that God works in different ways at different times with different people to fulfill His own purposes and for the good of that person in the long run. If you're here today, God called you specifically for a purpose. No man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw it. You did not come to understand the truths of God on your own. You did not get it from a relative. You did not get it from a booklet. You did not get it from studying your own Bible. It came because the Spirit of God picked you out to open your mind. Now, the vehicle might have been a booklet. The vehicle might have been a relative. Might have been a broadcast. Might have been a parent. But it came from God through His Spirit. Because a lot of people 
listened to your parents. A lot of people read booklets. A lot of people listened to the broadcast. And their mind never opened. Never got a clue of the truth. Even though they stumbled across it. God had to open the mind. We all have fears. We all have doubts. We all have troubles. We all face obstacles. But do we have a very deep, abiding faith in the living God? A faith that is underlined by our work. Paul said, I will show you my faith by my works. Now that's exactly what Jacob did in this story. He said, I believe that dream I just saw. And if God does the things that I saw in that dream, I vow before God that I will serve Him all my life and I will give one-tenth of everything that I earn to show that trust and that faith in God. Tithing is a matter of faith. Where you give 10% of everything God gives you back to Him, and that is part of the works that underline faith. They are a proof of faith. Because it really doesn't to us make any sense to give something to people who represent a God that you cannot see. That doesn't make logical sense to the human mind. But it's something that has to do with the spiritual and with faith and trust in God. And it's not always easy, is it? I've seen people over the years paying first tithe, keeping their second tithe to keep God's holy days, to make sure that that got done. I've seen them on the third and six years out of seven, keeping a third tithe to take care of the poor, the widow, and the orphan. That's 30% of their income on those years. You know what that requires? faith. Because you can't put paper and pencil to that and make it work. I've listened to many people who said, I went into my third tide year, I sat down, I looked at the things and my budget won't fit this. I can't do this. And they did it and it worked. Because they received gifts, they received blessings, they received opportunities. Things just happened that made it work because of their faith and their trust in God. And I've seen that happen over and over and over through the decades. But there's no logic on earth of man that could make that work. It has to be faith in God and His promises and His work. Why 
Is it so hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? Like a camel going through the eye of a needle. Those who have wealth tend to trust in their wealth. Why has God called a poor people and left us, for the time being at least, pretty much in poverty? Because when you don't have the things that people tend to trust in, you fear. And if there is no other answer, what do you do? You get on your knees and you turn to God. And that's where He wants us. Rich men do not turn to God. Poor people turn to God. The wealthy man has all the answers he thinks he needs. Why did David say, oh, why do the wicked seem to prosper? All these lying, cheating thieves out here have all they need, everything they want. And the righteous barely have bread. It's all part of the process, brethren. The trouble we go through and what we're going through right now today in a dying nation, in a dying world, is part of what Israel went through when the plagues hit Egypt. And they suffered along with Egypt for a while, just as we're beginning to suffer along with the people of this nation. But if we turn to God with our whole hearts, He's going to save us. And all these blessings, He's going to give us. Now, he told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'll give them to you. He told Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, write this down. I'll do it for those people at the end. He even told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'll do it for those people at the end in the latter days, the last days. What we really need to draw from this series of sermons is a recognition of trust in He who is to be feared above all. He who holds the keys of life and death. He who holds the keys of blessing and cursing. Mankind does not hold that. They have the capacity to curse us physically. But he says, if you'll trust me whom you cannot see and do things the way I say them, I will take care of you. He's promised that. Now we must do our part. All we have to do is trust and believe, live according to his laws and ways, And we can believe in full confidence that He will take care of us through what is about to come. Do you believe that? The reason I ask that is because not many people do. Not many people believe that. If you do, you're one of the very few. And I'll tell you where it really is. We want to believe that. We partially believe that. 
we still have our fears. We still have our doubts. We still have our discouraged moments. Because we do not have utter and total trust and faith in God. We are, we're not completely against it, nor are we completely into it. We fall somewhere in between. Now, in your own life, sometimes you believe God more than you do others. There are times when you're focused spiritually, when you'd go to the wall like Uriah and do anything God said. And there are other moments in your life where, for some reason, you might be timid or weak and you give in to things other than what God would have you do. That's just being human, brethren. All I know is to hold up the highest standard that I can do out of this book. The strengths, the power, the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. And then throw in there some of the mistakes they made to let us realize that even though we're human, God can use us. Because if we thought that we had to be like Abraham was at his best at all times, we'd give up. Or Isaac or Jacob. Now we look to do and power the things they did when they were strong. And then we need to look at the things they did when they were weak and say, boy, I can identify with that. And since they got up and brushed themselves off and walked on and served God in spite of their problems, I will do the same. Great encouragement there. Let's look to these men. Let's look to their lives. Let's take courage and strength in their strength and courage and strength even in their weaknesses. You know, you know even of a high priest, Aaron, God said... The only way he can go and offer for the people is if he offered for himself first. Because he, Aaron, was also very human. Now, should we disrespect Aaron because he was very human? No, we should respect Aaron because he saw his faults, his weaknesses, and he went and sacrificed animals in his own behalf before he could sacrifice for the people. Now, I have been called to talk to you, to encourage and strengthen and empower you. And sometimes even that is a difficulty for you. Because I am but a man, a human being. I have my faults, I have my weaknesses. Sometimes I'm strong, sometimes I'm not as strong. I fall on my face and I have to get up and move on anyway. Sometimes it's discouraging trying to lead people in a right way when it's sometimes even hard to discern what is the right way. What is the correct answer to this, that, or the other doctrine? What should we be doing here? And those answers don't always come easy. Sometimes I see people healed, God's intervention, it's encouraging and strengthening. 
And sometimes I see nothing happen. And it could be very discouraging and frustrating. But I have to take into account all these things as well. And I know I'm but a man. I know I sweat and stink just like you do. And sometimes it's hard for you to listen to another man and say, well, you know, he's just a man. But I've been commissioned, I believe, by God to preach His Word. To be instant in season and out of season. To cry aloud and spare not. And when I look at my own weaknesses and my own faults and my own lacks, sometimes it's very hard to do that. I don't even want to come over here and do it. Sometimes I feel stronger than others, but sometimes... It's all I can do to come out the back door of that house and in the front door over here because I know I'm not what I ought to be. We heard in the sermonette that we're not to judge others lest we walked in their moccasins. Well, I can judge all of you because I've probably walked in every moccasin in here. I doubt if there's been a mistake any of you made that I haven't made. Okay? Hopefully we all repent of the mistakes we make. And we move forward. I can't point to me. I have been commissioned to point to these people here and to God. So don't respect, disrespect God because I'm not what I ought to be at all times. Just as we don't disrespect Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they weren't what they ought to be at all times. We should respect each other here because we do keep trying and we do keep after it. And when we make mistakes, we repent and we pick ourselves up and we move on. And God gives us another chance, as He says in Lamentations, every day the sun comes up. Every day above ground is a good day, no matter what it brings. Because we have opportunity to serve our God better that day than we did yesterday. Yesterday is a memory. Tomorrow is a dream. Today is reality. What we do with today and what we do with tomorrow when it comes is what counts, not what we did with yesterday. So let's be strong. Let's trust God. Let's believe God. Let's not fear what man may bring upon us, but let's move forward in trusted faith that there is an almighty God in heaven who is going to save some people in the end and know that we can be one of those. And that we can show the rest of the world one of these days what it's like when God blesses people for obedience. We have been able as a nation over the last two, three hundred years, to show the world what the obedience of one man, one man could bring. Look at all this country has produced in its history, and it was all because of the obedience of Abraham. 
God did all this and gave us all this land and everything in it from sea to shining sea because of the obedience of one man. And we have been able to show that to the world up until today. And it's getting to the point. You can't point to America anymore and say, there is the blessing of God because of the obedience of Abraham. It's getting where it's hard to say that anymore. Now we, here, today, you are on the phone line as well, and those who may listen later, have the incredible opportunity to be in Abraham's shoes because of our obedience flesh can be saved because of our obedience we can be blessed here in the end time and the rest of the world can have two men go around the world and point to a few people the 10% remnant of God's called out ones who are being blessed and having milk and wine without money and a garden of Eden. Wonderful health, wonderful climate, everything they could desire because of obedience to God when the rest of the world is crying for the rocks to fall upon their heads. Brethren, we have the opportunity to be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to this world. What an incredible opportunity and responsibility. It's not just an opportunity because we have accepted it in baptism. And now we must live it. With opportunity comes responsibility and accountability. We've been given the opportunity. And now we understand that opportunity. Now let's be responsible so that God can say, I held those accountable. They passed. The rest of the world, look. And if you will repent, if you will obey me, I will give you a thousand years of this just like they have. Do we begin to really grasp the incredible opportunity that is ours? God has put us in the exact same position He put Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Obey me and I will bless you and your children forevermore in the kingdom of God. The physical blessings He promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and yes, the spiritual with them to those men. He has promised us and our children forevermore if we will obey. Does it mean a little more now when he says, Fear Him who can save or destroy both body and soul, and don't fear Him who can only destroy body? That's a lot to think about and a lot to grasp. That's where I want to stop today with those thoughts.